0: Good afternoon everybody and welcome to current events with Max and Colborn. It is 11:14 a.m here in Austin, Texas. My name is Max Cohen I'll be one of your hosts today on this current events podcast and joining me. For current events with Max Colborn is, of course, the founder of the Museum of Cryptoart, Colborn Bell. How are we, Colborn?
1: Uh, I'm really good, Max. I actually have that feeling in my nose of trying or of having to sneeze, and it's it's really bothering me.
0: I thought you were gonna like say like the feeling in my gut that like the space is back <laughs> and we have a lot to talk about.
1: No, no, I'm just kidding.
0: something that may be a problem later. All right, yeah. we'll uh, we'll table it and we'll um we'll cross that bridge when we get there. On current events, if you've never listened before, we talk about pretty much everything that's going on the last week of crypto or NFTs, crypto, blockchain, etc. And we do it pretty much off the dome. I'm not trying to stump Colborne, nor is he trying to stump me, but we're trying to challenge each other. So Colborne, I've got some challenging questions for you, and uh, I'm really excited to hear how you respond. So uh, shall we go ahead with our first current event of the week?
1: Let's jump right in.
0: All right. So the first thing that caught my eye earlier this week is uh, Punk6529. Uh, announced Emma, which is an editor for managing multi-phase allow lists. And this is a kind of open source tool um, that had been announced. You know, he's been running the meme cards for you know God knows how long uh, and has done a lot with allow list systems for various holders of various projects. The system itself is designed to automate the allow list process. And I have a couple of questions for you on this because I think it's pretty interesting because one of the reasons for the development of this product was that you don't always want everyone to be able to mint a project so the idea of allowing people to basically be able to set up a gallery anybody being able to like automate the allow list process that would like approximate a real world gallery where you could invite certain people to see and manage and mint projects would be the goal and kind of the value add so colbert i'm curious did you hear about this do you have any initial thoughts on it before we go along
1: No, I haven't heard about it. It's something actually, though, that I'm very uh, interested in and see a lot of applications for for what I'm putting at Zero One. Can you say more about that? Well, when you think about, you know, the idea of a cultural distribution engine, other than things just being kind of a a free-for-all, or people have described kind of the activity on Zero One sometimes as a piranha mentality... Uh, How do you get more specific in rewarding the people who have been alongside you for the journey from the beginning? So how do you create long lasting fans, long lasting collectors? How do you reward and incentivize those people to stay with you on the journey?
0: I think the uh, metaphor he used was that if you were opening a gallery, you wouldn't just allow whoever like physically got there the quickest to be the people who uh, purchased that artwork. Uh, But something else that he had said in his kind of tweet announcement thread, or their tweet announcement thread, I will admit I don't know 6529's gender, that the system is complex because we are solving fundamental building block problems from first principles. Once the foundations are in place, we'll work on simplification, this being a response to people talking about you know whether it's going to be user-friendly or not. And I think it's really interesting to think about these tools still being so in their infancy that like we're just building the functionality and that the UX, UI, the usability hasn't gotten in there yet. Uh, I wrote for our Wednesday column, Dear Mocha, about uh, wallets and how archaic wallets are in general, how difficult they are to use. And there's a possibility there as well that we're just so early stage development that we're just trying to build out the functionality still and all of the kind of simplification and usability some distance away. Hmm. Was that a question? <laughs> uh, well, it's, you know, one of those like open-ended thoughts that, you know, I hope with, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, it's, it's cool, of course, that there are still some principles of CCO that people are releasing and sharing, you know, these tools publicly, you know, maybe I, I can rewind it and ask a question of you in, in that, do you actually think 6529 is an individual? That's a question I have never
0: a single time given any thought to. <laughs> um, I guess not now. <laughs> what do you
1: think? I don't. I don't think six five two nine is an actual person. It's kind of in the same vein that I didn't really think crypto eight 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 is an actual person. I it, and it goes to you know the idea that very powerful interests can begin to, you know what is it, perhaps LARP as individuals? Interesting. And I think I think this is mostly a conglomeration of capital LARPing as an individual. Yeah, I've never really considered that before. The anonymity aspect is so
0: interesting. I mean, it certainly makes, I mean, it's uh, uh, it blew my mind a little bit, Colborne. Um, I never think about the actual potential, like, I don't know, economic makeup of these entities. It makes a lot of sense if you think about like, The skill sets and the, I guess, the wide ranging skill sets that seem to be centralized in a lot of the stuff 6529 does, as well as the, I would say, overarching, I guess, theme of the 6529 entity, which I mean, I guess it would be ironic that like sees the memes of production would be then put into uh, use by some kind of like conglomeration, but I had not given that any thought. So let's just end that there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm here. I'm here scrolling the six five two nine Twitter feeds.
0: Well, presumably somebody bought that punk at some point, right?
1: Yeah, but of course, people don't have to buy everything. You know, corporations can buy things too. That's true, but you know, you have to think like somebody claimed it, right? Somebody. I mean, should we go? Should we go do
0: some live investigative journalism right now on the open in open sea? Uh, and the first actual... Well, go
1: to not go to Go to the CryptoPunks website. Oh, It smart. was claimed by ShillPixel and sold on May 1st of 2021 and transferred between five different wallets. Yeah, 6529 six, five, nine and 6529 Museum. Was the second recipient. Oh, then he moved it over to the museum. They don't have those on CryptoPunks.
0: Yeah, it looks like it was... uh some kind of an address was bought it from Shell pixels to punk 6529 and then to the museum or their museum back to them and then back to their museum but that was all two years ago
1: yeah this is not where they also the same address bought five punks and has and sold one of them and if we go to the ether scan of this address, this is real. This is not at all where I thought that <laughs> this podcast was going to go. There's about $400 in here. Oh, and the last thing they did was the punks to, the punks comic token.
0: I'm going to be on an airplane tomorrow editing this, trying to figure out how to make this like you narratively rich interesting.
1: For, a, for an audio only audience. <laughs> Bast- so what this address has interacted with is they interacted with bastard gan punks, hash masks, crypto me bits, and the punks comic token, which was a beanie product. Pretty boring to be honest. Yeah, some Uniswap stuff, some FTX, Binance. The original in transaction was March 13, 2021 from Binance. I, I'd love for you to finish up um, a final like
0: evaluation, and then I, I want to jump onto something else.
1: No, I don't. I don't really have much to say here, other than you know maybe I'll do some investigative sleuthing on on what is actually around six five two nine. That's kind of interesting to me. And
0: six five two nine, if you're listening to this and you're a real person, uh, we want you to come on the podcast.
1: Yeah, but everywhere they go, they do that just awful. 6529, if you're going to come on the podcast, you have to change your voice modulator because everywhere they speak, it's just you cannot hear it. You cannot understand it. This is my gift to you and your team. Change your voice modulator.
0: You're here here first, folks. 6529 needs a new voice modulator. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next current event. Uh, You mentioned just haphazardly or I guess randomly in 6529's wallet, something having interacted with something with FTX. And we know from this past week, a lot of information has come out about the FTX trial, Um, specifically Caroline Ellison, who was um, a high-ranking executive at Alameda and FTX, which are the two Sam Bankman freed companies that are kind of in the center of this maelstrom of negligence and uh, misery. And The reason I want to talk about this is because I keep seeing various Twitter pages and groups tweeting out pieces of transcriptions from things that Caroline Ellison has said, such as Solana is a VC-backed blockchain that could be shut off at will for the uh, benefit of um, large investors. But that wasn't necessarily true or actually pulled from anything she said. And it's very interesting to see this kind of misinformation being transferred in real time and then obviously picked up as it does on crypto Twitter and just kind of backed as if it's fact. So I'm curious, I know you haven't really been super in the loop, but if you have been keeping the loop at all with this FTX trial, has it been interesting to see the kinds of information that is coming out and the kinds of ways people are glomming onto that information?
1: So I haven't particularly been paying attention to the trial directly. I've seen some of this. I've, I've mostly been offline. I think what is interesting for sure is that Ripple, I'm sorry, is that Solana does feel like almost Ripple 2.0 for some reason. And it's funny that it was your entrance in. It's It's almost like the evil villain of this character of Crypto. Uh, of this, of this arc that we're in, because for all intents and purposes, it is a centralized VC back coin. It was just something that a lot of capital got around uh, in Asia first. And I think they proved that they could turn it on and off at will. And the whole point of Alameda was to liquidate normies, right? They knew kind of the, the holes in their book that needed filling and they could see all of that order flow. So they were orchestrating kind of these cascading liquidations. And they were kind of playing around on global order books, spoofing bids. So, you know, they they treated it as as a game. And we all know they were, you know, Sam was kind of just like legendary gamer archetype, totally doped up uh adderalled out stimulant patched so you were uh you've been doing
0: crypto for quite a while and you i think have more exposure to the i don't know deeper seated economic side of it than a lot of people i know like when do you remember this figure or rather like these companies whatever you want to call them uh, from solana kind of emerging into the limelight like what was the first interaction you had or first you know notice you had of sam bankman fried and his merry band of you know whatever i mean you call i it. was
1: in a whatsapp group with him and i remember Flex. You know, well <laughs> <laughs> i i just remember you know and and doquan was in there for a while as well you know a lot of legitimate people brought a lot of legitimate concerns to the table because they're much closer to the say engine or the architecture of what they were doing and you know like any good crook trying to propagate their scam all they did was just like defer and deflect i'm not really on the financial side of this anymore it it's it was too messy in 2017 2018 now it's a whole other animal In you know, at that time, you could really play as an individual, there wasn't such large institutional interest per se. So, you know, in 2017 on Poloniex, I could see when certain algorithm bots were being triggered. And if you were constantly at your computer, you could kind of momentum trade with those bots, and that was like a great way to make you know, to, just to kind of like scalp some trades and make some money. But naturally over time, those algorithms, those bots became so much more sophisticated. Those, those order books grew in depth and kind of the size and scale of all of these things moved 100, 1000. Who, who even knows like the depth and complexity that, that these things are all operating with now. So
0: I have a another current event that's kind of based on the same topic, but I'm wondering if you have anything for me before we go there. No. Okay. Cool.
1: Yeah. Let's then, let's stay kind of on this trend.
0: Yeah. Let's stay in the economic side because you were talking about just a moment ago the way we've I said essentially consolidated um, algorithms and influence in certain large actors, and I think one of the big pieces of news from this week that may not have gotten a lot of press, but I think is pretty momentous in terms of its implication is the rumor of the Bitcoin spot ETF being kind Mm. of imminent um, or rumors of its approval. And I would love to kind of just give you the floor to talk about what that means, because when you talk about this kind of crypto economic regulation, deregulation side of things, it's always very enlightening for me. So what does it mean if this kind of And what does it mean, good and bad? Because I think people are kind of uh, smoking the hopium on this a little bit uh, and not really understanding the implication for centralization that it might imply down the road. So um, what do you think of this whole kind of movement towards a Bitcoin spot ETF?
1: Okay. So my understanding is that uh, Barry Silver founded owns the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust which is ticker GBTC on, uh, I think it, I don't know if it's over the counter, if it's New York stock exchange. Um, But traditionally this has been like the institutional product that yeah. OTC markets, GBTC in the U S this has been the institutional product that has allowed either, you know, retail investors or whoever to, you know, I don't want to say access Bitcoin directly because it's, it's still not your keys, not your coin. But, you know, the way, I don't even know where to begin to explain this. The way that a trust works is that, you know, they pool all of these funds. They use those funds to buy Bitcoin directly. They store it securely on your behalf. And on top of that, they take a really, really chunky management fee. I think it might still be 2%. Nobody else has really been able to compete with Grayscale in this regard. Now, there are, you know, spot Bitcoin ETFs in, uh, I believe, Canada, which is pretty difficult for US uh, investors to access, right? And now I believe it's BlackRock that says they're pursuing a Bitcoin ETF as well. So the difference between a trust and an ETF is as follows. Uh, ETFs allow for one of one redemptions, right? Which, which means that when it's at spot, you're basically trading one-to-one with the underlying asset. Trusts, however, do not allow for redemptions in that regard. So for A lot of Grayscale's history, because it was the only product out there, you were able to, uh, it traded at actually a premium. It might have traded at like a 20, 30% premium to the spot price of Bitcoin. And what they were offering because of this was the ability for investors to, larger investors, qualified investors, to put in more money and I believe it was nine months later, unlock those shares that they purchased at net asset value. So <laughs> this is where it gets confusing. And this actually, it led to a lot of the blow up of things like Celsius and kind of these extended APRs that everybody was seeing because people like this would take retail funds and then they would add, at- the cost of Bitcoin, buy into Grayscale or GBTC, nine months later, they would receive those shares and they would immediately sell that and capture the premium. And for a long time, that's how they were able to offer 11% APR on things like Tether because they themselves were making 20% on this trade. The problem with that is that the trade got so, so crowded that that premium eventually inversed to a discount and all of this money that they were promising people in that nine-month window, it, it basically went away because suddenly the shares that they were purchasing at par value to the price of Bitcoin were now trading at a discount and it, it led to a collapse of a lot. And, and this is when people kind of talk about, you know, what does it mean to rehypothecate Bitcoin I don't know. I don't know where you want to start to touch.
0: Well, okay. I I mean, first of all, it's incredibly helpful to hear that actually spoken in kind of an unbroken chain because to me, I've had to put so much of my like economic know-how together in bits and pieces from a tweet here, a tweet there from people who are speaking to different audiences. So I think I want to jump into the implication category, right? Now that these spot ETFs yeah. are kind of let's even say that they are imminent, right? Let's assume that these rumors are true. Let's assume that approval is on the horizon. Let's assume that retail investment on exchanges of Bitcoin properties or Bitcoin value is going to be open to every single person who has a stock account and every single institution who is trading on the stock market. What do you see that doing to Bitcoin, A, and the larger crypto ecosystem now that these much larger a- you know, actors are going to have another reason and perhaps even an incentivized reason to come and start investing here.
1: I will say, so, you know, the, the, the world of the wealthy operates with financial advisors, right? And they are money managers for people's portfolios. Beyond people, you know, you start to talk about large pension plans uh, and, you know, large... Kind of kind of groupings of money which hold and cement the value of a lot of the the existing stock market. So the grayscale product being that you know it has a 2% management fee and it has kind of this, you know, fluctuating premium discount is really, really difficult for a financial advisor no matter how much they like Bitcoin, to recommend to a client in this regard. Now, if you get a spot ETF of Bitcoin, well, then it's very easy to say that, look at the history of, of Bitcoin. It's a rather uncorrelated asset um, from the stock market, from the bond market. It could occupy a place maybe one percent, two percent in somebody's portfolio. It's historically, you know, out returned. And all of these models operate on risk management. And kind of the, the risk to return over time for Bitcoin has never been really approached by or approached by anything else. So you know there is an argument to be made that this is an asset that should be included in not only very wealthy individuals portfolios, but it could be in pension plans. It could be in, you know, all sorts of places where people are constructing portfolios. And if that unhappens or if that happens, then really you begin to unlock Hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of net buying into Bitcoin. So is it the bull case that I think
0: people are treating it as? Or is this does this not affect us downstream? I
1: mean, this is no, this is this is almost endgame, right? So if you can get into these places, then that cements your status. I you know, I read one tweet thread describing what happened to gold after BlackRock got mm-hmm. involved? Like
0: gold, gold, like actual like metal.
1: Gold, 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 metal. Yeah. Uh, you know, when the gold ETF was created and BlackRock began to get involved, that moved to the market cap of gold from one trillion to 13 trillion. And, you know, if that happens with Bitcoin, then then it's it's really game over. I've talked about it in the past people you know describe capital as very fluid, but in reality capital is is very much cement. so this is this would really cement Bitcoin as an investment grade asset, which significantly reduces its volatility because suddenly when you have mostly retail investors trading momentum and trends, you have you know, large institutional funds with significantly longer time horizons, these people just buy and hold. Right. And then that supply gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, and tighter for for how much you know Bitcoin is available on the market and and prices resultingly skyrocket. That's
0: honestly fascinating. <laughs> this is already
1: 27 minutes in. probably become the
0: most educational podcast we've ever done. So thank you for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is a, this is, well, thanks for talking about it, because obviously we've moved outside of art, but this is, and it's coming at a time also when everybody is coming to me for, you know, like crypto tax advice. This is a part of me I kind of left behind, but is certainly coming back to the forefront. I think it's really important that these discussions happen
0: even in like the art world because it's, it's impossible to avoid the fact that the crypto art is downstream of crypto and all of this stuff has like a cascading effect just as, you know, real world, not real world art, but like physical art that is, is downstream of actual investing and they're used as investment vehicles, um, which is a large part of how that market is propagated and how funds end up then moving down to newer artists or emerging artists or emerging art scenes. So especially as we've seen the consolidation of people in this space with the extended bear market and you know, less and less people here. I think it behooves everyone to have a more jack-of-all-trades kind of mindset about everything that's going on here. Even if it doesn't actually factor into your practice or factor into your um, collecting, just knowing more and more about the larger environment, like it can't hurt. And I think it's really, really important, especially when people start coming back in. And, you know, If slash when the bear market, quote-unquote bear market returns and people start to become interested, you know, people who all haven't been interested before, the more expertise each of us individually has, the better we're going to be able to do um, at explaining this, at bringing it to new people, at um, having new folks buy in. Um, so I, I think it's really inv- vital to have these conversations. Um, let's keep it on the the economic train because I, I do have another current event that has some financial implications, uh, which is the end seems to be near for OpenSea. And the reason I say that is because their newest product announcement is their creator studio, um, which was met with, from my perspective, pretty widespread indignation. So this is a competitor to Zora and Manifold, right? You would mint on their platform, uh, on OpenSea's platform, but where Zora takes a .0007 ETH add-on, rather, to the price from the buyer and manifold does something similar with like point zero 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 six nine a couple dollars that's how they're keeping the lights on. Opensea wants to take 10% from every sale of everything that's created on their platform as a standard. And this was just met with outrage from every you know every NFT enthusiast, every artist, every collector, just the sheer audacity of OpenSea, a company that has become in the last couple months, the like poster child for artist hostility um, when they started getting away or doing away with royalties to now come back in with a new product that seems intend to intended to sap a whole lot more value from the ecosystem, way more than its competitors are. So I'm curious, like what is, in your opinion, what does this mean for OpenSea that they are, again, wading into waters that are going to make them public enemy number one?
1: man i I have never seen a company fall so hard from grace it was so easy they literally had to do nothing <laughs> they, they had to do nothing it was it's just insane the amount of like reactionary back and forth flip-flopping I'm sure they're getting all sorts of contradictory advice from from the VCS that poured money into them you know I heard a long time ago that these, these same VCs were taking kind of like 80, 90% haircuts on, I think it was like a $13 billion valuation that they got during the, the bull market. And that's insane that they just want out. You know, they have an incredibly variable business, right? They do. They month over month, they do not know traffic loads. They do not know how much data they're going to be serving. And you know, they made commitments to index across a, a thousand different places. So it, it, it you know, it lives up to its name, but we've, we're finding more and more. And in your conversation with Ezra, you really touched on this, is that niche artists want generally niche indie products. And, you know, if... And, and they never focused on art, right? They're, they're a tr- inherently they're a trading platform. They're trying to make a market. So you know they kind of got their legs cut out from under them by Blur, and you could say that Blur effectively wrecked the whole market. <laughs> so it's you know it's it's a brutal space. It's just a it's just cutthroat. It's just cutthroat, and people will eat today and just pass the garbage down for later.
0: It feels like every time they announce something or anytime they take a step it's into cow shit um, which is their own doing cuz they you know planted themselves down in a field of cow shit. So but even still like it just feels like again with each misstep we are witnessing like the fall in real time of this giant and what is the NFT world without an open sea, right? There is no direct competitor. There is no I I, again, I wrote about this the other day with wallets, but like OpenSea is still the best and easiest place. I hate to say it, or maybe not the best, but certainly the most accessible place to like view one's NFT portfolio. Totally. View one's collections without that kind of widespread, accessible, name recognized kind of center bastion for actually looking at the visual assets that we all collect. What is the space? do what moves into that niche. I mean, and it doesn't seem easy. If it were easy, we'd see competitors, but there really hasn't been like a great um, competitor to OpenSea, um, at least in terms of it's like all in one capabilities.
1: I, I, I totally agree, you know, and I'm part of my next journey in this space is, is building a marketplace for zero one. So I have to try and take all of those lessons that I've learned and, and put it together. You know, people need these tools. This is critical infrastructure. Uh, Artists want their work on OpenSea. It's kind of a mark of legitimacy still. You know, where do I go when I want to transfer or view? Yeah, I, I still go to OpenSea, but I haven't done any sort of trading or list prices or anything like that on OpenSea in years. It's just, it's interesting. I think, again, just each time
0: that they release a new product, people are further and further out on OpenSea and more and more willing to jump ship immediately to the first adequate competitor that's going to rise. And I don't know where that competitor is yet. I don't know if it exists yet. I don't know when it will exist, but it just seems monumental. And um, the team at OpenSea seems to have no interest in walking back any of the missteps that they've taken or really listening to people. Maybe they don't have the capability to do so because like you said, they've been sapped of so much of their funding by the VCs who invested
1: in them. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those like who's the captain now moments. <laughs> who, who actually is running OpenSea? I have no idea. 6529. Right? Six, I, you know, I knew you know, we, we had relationships with Alex, we had relationships with Devin. These were people, right? And OpenSea was accessible. Now you try and get a, a, any sort of contacts with OpenSea, it's impossible. It's just impossible. You can't get anything done. You can't have any voice heard. Who knows where these complaints are going? Nobody, it's, it's really tough. And I think people are realizing this. Once you lose the human element in this space, you're almost gone for good, right? There's, there's no turning back. And it's, it's a lot of the same issues that we felt at the museum with Polygon, who were so great about supporting us early and 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 Sandeep and then once they took whatever it was that 700 million dollar check and everything rolled over it's it's suddenly like who is in control now and all of those relationships that you had what do they mean anymore well suddenly overnight they mean nothing and that's it's really really difficult on a nascent industry that is built on relationships and it was these relationships and this trust and this desire to you know support and see these people succeed that really blossomed something great that it's 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 really i don't know it, the the speed at which things change in this space is mind-boggling and also how quickly so much goodwill can turn into ill will I, and that's what i say they literally had to do nothing and i feel that I feel that like a, about a lot of organizations in this space is everybody, you know, when we were alone and nobody cared, everybody had a clear vision forward. And then suddenly when everybody cared, everybody was looking at each other for, and then, and then competing with each other and cr- trying to create complementary or, or the same product, right? So super rare spaces came out foundation copied it with worlds. Um, stuff stuff like this, right? Manifold comes out, so OpenSea now has to have their own creator studio. Blur comes out, so then they have to have OpenSea Pro. And I get everybody wants to eat all of the market share, but at the same time, when you rush out half-baked products that don't really fit with your existing user base and... I don't know. Yeah, all, all the
0: flaws are going to end up being exposed because all these people are going to come in and start using it for all these different, you know, niche use cases like we were saying. People want niche cuz every artist has every artist is niche in their own way.
1: And whatever OpenSea never released their OpenSea tokens, so, you know, they never made us all rich. Still waiting. Still it's waiting too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's turn it back to the art
0: for a last current event. Um, and we've talked about this a lot on our podcast. You know, We had Matt Kane talk about his work on this podcast last week. But Colborne, I'm curious. Um, we have not gotten your opinion yet on the whole kind of contractual obligations journey that has taken place over the last two weeks with Matt Kane coming out with this Rare Pass pro, uh, project, contractual obligations, which kind of was a commentary on Rare Pass, on Super Rare. It sparked a lot of conversation, sparked a lot of ire. Um, I'm curious just what you think of this whole project. I mean, I've given my thoughts, Matt has come on here and given his thoughts, but from your unique position, what do you think?
1: So, you know, I was in a different place when this was happening. I didn't catch the super rare space on it. My, what I am gathering from this is that people expected kind of a, a Matt Kane style work. And he did an AI project instead. This is,
0: yeah, yeah, more or less. Instead of being, you know, his classical styled generative work with a huge focus on like color theory and like yeah. smart contract integration, it was yeah, AI works um, purposefully, quote unquote, low effort. Way more of a an overt performance that requires you to engage with Matt as a personality than his other works and he has project or he just released a project called anons and multitudes which is classic matt kane it's exactly what not exactly what you'd expect rather but a an evolution of his style that same kind of color theory focused portraiture instead of it being more kind of like abstract so yeah people were pretty shocked
1: yeah i loved it of course i'm (laughs) gonna love this right i if it's not also just like the perfect indication of where we are going and ultimately how scarce and rare what came before was then this is it right because i feel that matt kane choosing to do a large generative i mean he has of course all the tools to do any sort of generative collection that he wants but choosing ai in this moment i don't i knowing Matt, i know it wasn't low effort it it doesn't appear to be low effort there are some very stunning outputs me, if I had to generate 250, it would take, you know, it would take a considerable amount of time to generate and curate 250 outputs. Um, And I think he did that. So I, I'm, I'm not going to, even if he will, I'm not going to downplay his effort in doing it. I think of course, what is interesting is the fact that yeah, he was contractually obligated to deliver something and his work is not of the type where (laughs) things Matt burrs things over time right it's so specific it's not like you can just give him a a due date and the work (laughs) is going to be complete yeah right so I you know I I loved it I loved I loved everything about it me too Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like the one that I got, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, you know, that's great. And I think, you know, you always look to the market. The market is, is really like never wrong. Those things, those things rose in price as they should. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a nice moment. And I think it
0: also the fact that they rose in price revealed that there are still a considerable amount of people who are engaging daily with the nuances and stories and conflicts within the space, which is heartening. I mean, I just love that we can still even be having this conversation.
1: I mean, look, I think a lot of people are, people are on the sidelines knowing a Matt Cain is going to drop at 250 to a bunch of random people that have no idea, you know, probably what they have or what it's worth. And they are looking to scalp and get in there as kind of what happens when Gazers sold for 0.25 ETH in the beginning of our blocks,
0: and what this piece has more than so many other pieces in this ecosystem is a story, and a, and a story that's now integral to, you know, it, its own story. Right? It's now it's now a part of crypto art. It's a part of this moment. We're never going to be able to look back at October of 2023 without, you know, having it be assaulted with all the meaning that Matt Cain put into it.
1: So it's a nice question. What does it mean to have a piece from any artist, right? And what's what's so lovely about it is that it's not afraid to break stylistically from what it was before. And I think what a lot of successful artists in this space will continue to find is that they are going to be stuck in a bit of a corner as to, you know, the style that made them popular. And I don't know, I hate giving specifics. Um, Come on, give me a specific, just one. No, I, you know, is, is, okay, like is, I'm, I'm curious to see, for example, what somebody like Grant Yoon might do with their vector illustrations over the course of a 20, 30 year career.
0: What, now that the neo-precisionism has taken over instead of like the abstract stuff?
1: Well, I mean, I, I just right, you know, is it's it's beautiful, it's stunning.
0: I mean, it's just it's a, it's an endless question, right? Like w- what do we expect from an artist and why do we expect that? And is it incumbent on the artist to either um, defy our expectations or fall in line with them? These are questions we cannot answer and which we won't answer, but you know which will never and will probably never be answered, but it's at least fun
1: to talk about them. So that's the, that's, that's the thing with, with like digital versus painting. Yeah. Right. Is the, the painting takes so much longer. So it seems in the past that people, that painters went for scale, right? Once they had identified their unique style, then they went for scale. Then they made it larger and it took longer now because scale is not an issue. You can create, you know, a, a giant dimension, work on an iPad Uh, and that's isn't that kind of what we saw Sam Spratt do right once he had identified like the themes and symbols of what he was going to speak about then he went for scale and the monument game is is a monumental piece Um, but where does it go I will I'll add
0: only this which is that Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel in like 1480 and then 20 years later he sculpted the David And those two things could not be more stylistically different. If you had seen the Sistine Chapel and you expected something from Michelangelo,
1: it would not be the David. So people have been doing this for quite a while. And where people like Robness win is that instantly they can transform themselves into any new style, any new aesthetic that appeals to them right and we have seen robness go through a hundred different personas and evolutions in the course of years
0: and yet he's afforded a kind of grace because of maybe the proclamation that this is going to be what he does and maybe this is what the next phase of matt kane's career as a crypto artist is going to be now that he's announced his intentions to defy expectations we're going to allow him the grace to
1: do so totally totally and we should you know, because frankly, go back and you look at Matt's career and and consistently he has done that. Right. He has painted. He has done I used to paint resin boxes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And just like stunningly beautiful work. So the code work that we know him for is actually really just a small glimpse of this whole journey. Yeah. It's late stage. Matt Kane. So, you know, somebody that creative, somebody that intentional will always find the places and frankly, somebody that brilliant will always find the new and novel places to go.
0: Well said, Colborn. Well that does it for all my current events. Do you have anything else you want to mention before we get out of here today?
1: I mean, I have a monster monster topic that is kind of relating to the cascading economic effects on all of these artists from the rise in crypto, but maybe we touch that next week.
0: Why don't we uh why don't we come back to it on Mocha Live this week? Sure, let's do it. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. We got a monster episode of Mocha Live coming this week. This has been Current Events with Max and Colborn. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast or give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our Substack newsletter at museumofcrypto.substack.com. You can find us on Twitter at Museum of Crypto or at Museum of Crypto, rather. Colborn, any last words for the people?
1: Uh, no, thank you for bearing with me as I kind of came back back online and began to process a lot of these thoughts that were, were very interesting. Max, thank you for your provocative questions in real time. Yeah. 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 You know, my, my, I don't feel like my descriptions were the best, but there's a lot of interesting stuff to, to your own research on in this podcast.
0: Absolutely. Please do your own research and let us know what you think. Uh, this has been Current Events with Max and Colborn, and we'll see everybody later this week with Mocha Live. So take care, everyone. Thanks for being here. And, uh... This podcast was produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured theme music by Julian Brangold.